Well, today is the first Sunday of July. Can you believe that half of this year is over? <laughs> I know a lot of you are saying, thank goodness, right? And probably others are a little concerned about what the second half will hold. Maybe not since 1968 has our nation lived with such, uh, in such a tumultuous time. Um, we're, I don't have to tell you, but I'm gonna go ahead and recap. We're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic uh, with new COVID cases skyrocketing in our nation. 127,000 Americans are dead and um, well over half a million people worldwide have deceased. It's, it's left many paralyzed in fear. Others still think it's a hoax. I, I don't figure. There's, there's frustration and there's anger everywhere. Like, like this issue of wearing a mask, it's, it's really kind of produced a sort of new legalism on both sides, with some people screaming at you for not wearing one, and others screaming they never will. These days have also been uh, turbulent, as we've seen earnest calls to end police brutality and fight injustice and racism after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Richard Brooks. But We've also seen some really bad actors exploiting uh, such cries for reform by just stirring up violence, looting, anarchy, really. All of this has made a lot of people in our country afraid they're losing their rights. And it's made me aware that there are still a lot of people in our country that are fighting to get their rights. We have angry mobs that are pulling down statues. We have some leaders calling for law and order. We have others demanding that we defund the police. And now, <laughs> good news, we're gearing up for what will in no doubt be the most divisive election in our history. Um, yeah, second part of this year is still going to be crazy. But it's in this climate where, <clears throat> where everybody has an opinion and we're all being outraged when other people don't see it from our point of view, it's in this climate. As Jesus followers, we need to be more introspect. We're called to live differently. I believe that in the midst of this chaos, the Lord is disruptively addressing his church. And James did such a great job earlier this morning helping draw our attention to the narrow way. That there are only two options, he said, and I have to agree with him. It was so prophetic what James was sharing. The Lord is disrupting his church. He's at work. And we best not act like we have it all together or set ourselves up as judge and jury without recognizing he is also dealing with us. He's dealing with his people, with our self-righteousness, with our disobedience, with our carnality. The Bible says, and it says in this book we've been studying, the book of Revelation, that God reproves and disciplines those he loves. And I believe that we are in such a time. He is he's calling us into account. He is pruning our branches. He's purifying our motives. He's stripping away the extra 
extraneous stuff that has bogged us down. And he is calling us to remember and to repent and to return to him. He wants his church to be more than a country club you join or a meeting you attend. He wants your whole life, not just your Sunday morning. He's serious. We are called to follow him. And what that entails is not a luxury journey. It entails denying ourselves, picking up our own cross, and then following him. And as his witnesses, we are to proclaim his gospel first, not any other message. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of his kingdom. The gospel that has a cross in it. We are to make disciples of all nations. And we are to live as ambassadors of reconciliation where we love mercy and we seek justice. And we walk humbly before our God. I believe that while there is much shaking going on in our nation and in the world, we first need to be concerned about the shaking that's going on in our midst. We need to hear what God is saying to us as his people before we can righteously say anything to the world that is around us. And it's for this reason that I have been taking us into a study into the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, namely the seven churches <clears throat> that Jesus addresses in this book. Because what Jesus says to them is relevant today. It's relevant for us. And while there may be things he will commend us for, just like he did for them, there's also a lot he's going to correct and require from us, just like he did with them. So if you have your Bible or your device, we'd like to look on the screen. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and that's not Smyrna, Georgia, by the way. <laughs> this is in Asia Minor, okay? To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know <clears throat> your tribulation and your poverty, but... You are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to show some of you and throw some of you, excuse me, into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Of these seven churches in Asia Minor, Smyrna is the only one still in existence. It's, it's called Izmir, Turkey. And it was a harbor city on the Aegean Sea that is still a harbor, unlike Ephesus. You remember, it had migration issues but this city is still on the water. Now it's 40 miles north of Ephesus and it was renowned for its beauty. Like many other Roman cities, it was a hub for the imperial cult uh, where you were cut off from society and from trade if you didn't worship the emperor. 
Smyrna erected a temple of worship to the emperor Tiberius in 26 AD, but it also had temples to Zeus and Sibylle, and it had also a large Jewish population. And of course, they were violently opposed to Christianity. The thing that stands out about this church is that it is one of the two churches that Jesus doesn't rebuke. Remember, last week we we talked about the church in Ephesus, that Jesus praised their works and their toil and their patient endurance. But then he said to them, I have this against you. Well, he doesn't say that of Smyrna. He doesn't say, I have this against you to them. That's noteworthy. And the absence of such rebuke makes me wonder, what are the true characteristics of a healthy, successful church? What is it that makes a church, in God's eyes, productive, successful, doing its job? Is it its size? Is it um, its budget? Um, The quality of its programs? the nice air conditioning in its sanctuary, uh, the number of services it has, how many sites that it can run, how big its staff is. It's interesting to me that the things that so many American churches get bound up into don't seem to be a priority to Jesus at all. It appears that none of that seems to really matter to Jesus, not in the case of the church in Smyrna. The American church has been seduced by a success model that says bigger is better, and if you build it, they will come. They've turned what Jesus sent us out to be his goers and his doers into everybody come and see what we're doing. But that's not what Jesus seems to be concerned with. Just just think about this. There's a trifecta of traits that Jesus attributes to Smyrna. And this is what they are. They're going to face tribulation, they're poor, and they're being slandered. (laughs) Wow. Really? Are, are, Are those good things? I mean, I wonder if they listed them as core values on their website. Maybe they had bumper stickers. Tribulation, poverty, slander. Come join us. No, that that sounds awful, pitiful. Who would even want to go to such a church if going to church is all about the appeal and what you get out of it? From a worldly point of view, this church in Smyrna, along with the one in Philadelphia that we'll talk about in a few weeks, they were the smallest, they were the poorest, and they had the least influence. Yet Jesus praises them the most. Jesus said in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You see it right there? Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. But we have parentheses here. But you are rich. Something quite noticeable in this letter to Smyrna is the paradox is used repeatedly. They, They were poor, but Jesus says they're rich. Their opponents claim to be Jews, but Jesus calls them Satan's synagogue. The one who is faithful unto death, Jesus promises a crown of life. And all of this is promised by the one who died, 
but who is now alive. Paradox throughout the whole letter. It reminds me of of the Christian life that is really full of paradox, where it can appear to be one thing, but in Christ, it's the direct opposite. G.K. Chesterton said, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, waving its legs to get our attention. In the Bible, paradoxes abound. Paradoxically, Jesus is both God and man. The Bible was given by both human inscription and divine inspiration. When we are weak, paradoxically, we are strong. When we lose our lives for his sake, it's there we find his life. When we're meek, we inherit the earth. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, then we are satisfied. When we are poor, yet we are rich. I want to ask you, what is it that's in your life that the circumstances seem to be outweighing what Jesus has to say about you? What is it in your life where you find yourself poor? But Jesus is yelling, you're rich. To which description do we pay more attention? To what our circumstances have to say about us? or what Jesus has to say about us. You see, riches are not simply what we inherit, what we earn, what we produce here on this earth. The riches that we have in his grace, in his kingdom, far outweigh any treasure that we can pile up for ourselves here. You may find yourself poor in so many circumstances, but what is Jesus saying? Of the church in Smyrna, he said, I know your poverty, but I see you as rich. These believers in Smyrna, they were opposed. They were, they were kept in poverty. They were even slandered because they were followers of Jesus. And as such, they weren't allowed to join the guilds, the guilds of commerce, like a, like a labor union, which was very prevalent in this city. And if you weren't a part of the guild, then you were kept from buying and selling goods. And these economic assaults resulted in poverty. And and later in the book, if you read the rest of Revelation, you see that the beast is one who makes submission to his mark, the condition for the privilege of purchasing and selling goods. And I have to admit to you that I'm even nervous about bringing up the mark of the beast. I, I get nervous because when people start talking about that, Oh, it conjures up so many theories, and especially conspiracy theories. Some say that uh, the mark of the beast is a chip under the skin, right? Some say it's online banking or Bitcoin. Uh, Right now, there's a lot of people saying that Bill Gates is the Antichrist and the mark of the beast is a COVID vaccine. And still even others are just saying wearing the mask is the mark of the beast. Now... I don't want to offend anybody. I really don't. But I don't know of any reputable Bible scholar who thinks a COVID vaccine or wearing a mask is related to the mark of the beast. Most likely, the mark of the beast is not even a physical or visible mark at all. And furthermore, when Christians obsess about the texts that talk about the mark of the beast while never talking about what scripture has to say 
about the mark of the lamb, then their eschatology is imbalanced. You see, we have been marked with the lamb. The father's name is on our forehead. Read about it in Revelation 14. And if we're more concerned about all that the beast might do in marking us, we need to first remember Jesus already did. And contrary to some fear-producing theories that are out there, I don't believe the mark is something that we accidentally take. I say this because the mark of the beast is intrinsically tied to worship of the beast. And it's not something you'll be tricked into by wearing a mask or paying your bills online. So unless you denounce your faith in Jesus and bow down to Satan as they give you this vaccine, it's probably not the mark of the beast. Trust God more than you fear the enemy. Now, look back at verse 10. Do not fear, he said to them, what you are about to suffer. Behold, listen, when Jesus says do not fear, how many times does he say that in Scripture? Do not fear. I feel like that's what he's saying to so many believers today, and yet I see so many believers afraid. Bound up in fear. It's like bondage. It's like a jail that they can't get out of. God's word to you would be, don't fear. I'm in charge. Don't fear. I have overcome. Don't fear what even you might suffer, he said to them. Let's continue, verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto the death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, while this message is specific to Smyrna, it's, it's probably also prophetic for the persecuted church, which suffered tremendous persecution, especially over the next 200 years after John writes this book, Revelation, up until the early 300s. And we have examples of that persecution recorded in history, and we have numerous ones that weren't recorded that are just as precious to the Lord. But for example, like in, in 107 AD, Ignatius, who was the bishop of Antioch in Syria, and he was a dear friend and disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this book. He was thrown to the lions and eaten alive in a Roman amphitheater. And then, just about 40 years later, 50 years later, uh, in, in 155 AD, Polycarp, who was an 86-year-old bishop of this very city, Smyrna, he was martyred. And when they asked him to renounce his faith in Christ, this disciple of John and a close friend to the martyred Ignatius, he responded this way, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I speak evil of my king who saved me? What powerful words. Tradition tells us that they put him to the flames, but that the fire refused to consume him, so they had to kill him with the sword and then burn his body. An intriguing part of what John writes in this to the, the Smyrna church is that it's 10 days, he says, that they'll face tribulation. And there's, there's been a lot of discussion like every other uh, mystery and symbol and number in the book of Revelation. What do these 10 days mean? 
Some think that they, they refer to 10 persecutions against the church that began with the emperor Nero and ended with Constantine. And it, it could be that. It could also be the 10 or so horrible years of persecution brought on largely by Emperor Diocletian. Whatever this 10 days represents, Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna to provide comfort and encouragement that he knew their struggles. He knew what they were going to face. He knew beforehand he was the first and the last. He would have the last word. He wanted them to know that he not only understood, but that he was with them, a very present help in their tribulation, and that there was a reward awaiting for them. This was a profound difference maker for this church, for what they faced and the persecuted church beyond them faced. They could know that what they experience in this life, that's not all there is. And I would say that to us as well. Whatever it is that we face in this life, that's not all there is. He has so much more. And for those of us who will persevere, even if it requires dying to ourselves or physically dying, there is a great reward awaiting us. So when we read this, this letter, the one that didn't have a rebuke. What does it say to us today? I feel like that the fact that there was no rebuke for this church may actually rebuke the church of the modern day. You see, first of all, this letter tells us there's a much bigger battle going on than the current fight in our nation around religious liberty. I, I want religious liberty and I'm very grateful that we have it in our nation. Over our history, the right that we have towards religious liberty has done much for the advancement of the kingdom. But scripture tells us that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And whether we have religious liberty or not, that will not change. He's sovereign. He'll use a nation who recognizes him as almighty. And he'll also use a communist regime who causes the Chinese church to grow larger and faster while doing it underground. God will use it all. He's not limited by anything man or political parties or governments can do. Secondly, I think this letter tells us the true markings of a successful church, and they're not size, and they're not wealth, and they're not problem-free existence. They're not prosperity at all cost. They're not our comfort. They are about him. And this church in Smyrna, though they're facing tribulation and slander and persecutions of all sorts, Jesus is still with them and he promises them the crown of life. And finally, it tells us that the life we live following Jesus is a paradox. We may be poor, but in Christ, we are rich. We may have lost, but in Christ, we have gained. We may have suffered great tribulation. We may have had to forsake even family and mothers and fathers and children in order to follow Jesus. But in him, 
We are a part of the family of God. Don't let your circumstances of poverty in any situation dictate to you what Jesus is really saying when he says, you are rich. Donna's gonna come and join us. We're gonna pray for you. Encourage you in this day. It's always a great blessing to have her share with us. This has been kind of one of the big pluses. Many people have said great things about it. So I'm always delighted to have her with us. You wanna share? I do. I was really hearing you when you said, do we listen to our circumstances or accusers or do we hear what God has to say? Not just about them or about our circumstances, but about us. Um, the scripture uses the word confess often and it, we typically use that word about confessing our sins. But confession is actually about confessing Christ. And what it's saying when we confess is we agree with him. Right. We are accepting his value. We're accepting his perspective. And at the beginning of our day today, when James was sharing those passages about, are we going to walk the narrow road and let God remove the things that so easily entangle us? Are we going to choose the narrow way? Are we going to get squeezed? Um, Chris has said in these last weeks, are, are we going to hear when God says, let go of this and put your hand to my plow? Um, and I feel like this letter to Smyrna is about us making a confession that we will go the narrow way, mm. that we will agree with him when he touches things in our lives or relationships or turns our world upside down. Um, that he is good and he is doing us good and our confession is him way before it's us and our sins and what That's we're right. struggling with That's we right. confess christ That's right. and so my prayer for us today is that we have the courage of our own convictions mm -hmm. that when he comes with a convicting word you're right james it is not heavy right it is the road to life it's yes. the only road to life yeah. And I want to be on that road with you guys. Yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for continuing to speak words of conviction to us and give us opportunities to agree with you, to say no to the sin that easily besets, to say no to the distractions and our preferences and the way we like things, um, and to say yes to you. Mm -hmm. We want to confess Christ. We want to say that our circumstances and the way we see things um, is not the greater reality, mm -hmm. but what you say mm -hmm. about us, about our world, about our purpose, what you say is truth and only truth and everything else is a lie. Mm -hmm. And so today, Father, I pray for each of us <clears throat> that we would hear your words of conviction that we would agree with you about whatever it is that you're touching in our hearts, in our lives, that we would rise up with faith and courage yes. to lay whatever it is down and to put both arms to the plow, that we would walk in obedience from this word today. 
and that it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other or give us a temporary moment of feeling good, but that we would be strengthened in your might to be able to say, yes, Lord, mm-hmm. be it unto us according to your word. Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are still speaking to your church. You are still walking among the golden lampstands, the light that you have called us to be. You are still engaged with. You're still walking among us. And you still have things that you are commending us for and also reproving us for. I pray, Lord, that your people, those that are called by your name in these days, will hear what you have to say about us. We will hear what your word is. Yes. And we will truly, with zeal, remember. Mm. And we will repent. And we will return to you. I pray, Lord, for the person out there that is listening today that feels that their life is nothing but poverty. May they hear your words as they fix your eye, their eyes on you that you have said they are rich. Mm-hmm. And may that reality make a difference in their daily lives. May we live according to your grace and not according to our circumstances, according to your call and not according to our problems. We thank you, God, for what you're saying and doing in this day. Help us to be a part of the answer and not a part of the problem. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope we'll see you tonight at our in-person communion gathering that's outdoors. And let's do a good job of social distancing. Um, You might want to wear masks. Certainly stay six feet apart from each other. But let's come together and receive from the Lord's table. The Lord bless you.